Hello, and welcome to the Scrum edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. This week, we're gathering Navigator's greatest minds together to welcome in 2022 and discuss everything from the Olympics, Quebec's fax tax, and Premier Doug Ford. Caroline Harvey was the executive producer of CBC's The National. Andre Pratt was the editor-in-chief of La Presse. And Michael Cook was the editor of the Toronto Star. And today, I'm very proud to call all of them my colleagues. We unpack the top trending stories that are cluttering the desks of newsrooms across the country to gather the inside scoop and assess the who, what, when, and where of the situation. From the controversial vax tax dividing Canadians to attempts to modernize one of Canada's largest news organizations, to shameless photo ops by politicians already in the hot seat. How will they dig their way out of this one? This is Political Traction. Okay, welcome back to the Scrum. This is our first episode of 2022, and we brought the panel together. So my colleagues, Caroline, Andre, and Michael Cook. I'm going to jump right in. We've had quite a bit of debate even before we got on air, because we have, I think, a lot to talk about. And the, the number one thing we were talking about via email, the last little bit, was the Olympics uh, and how to cover it. And I think that's really the theme of this week's episode. It's not so much the news itself, but how do how do editors, how to outlets, how do they make the decision to cover the news? So we've had, um, I think, and I'm going to go to you first, Caroline, because obviously you're at the CBC. They are the big Olympic broadcaster here in Canada. And there is a lot of debate around how to engage with the China Olympics, um, given uh, the state of play and affairs over in that country. Um, so maybe why don't you kick off and talk a little bit about what we're, what the CBC's plans to do and how that maybe differs from other outlets and, and you know, what calls you would be making if you were still um, in the in the driver's seat over there at the national. Thanks, Amanda. Um, so as you know, I think it's a I think it's a really fascinating conversation. It's one I know that has been going on inside newsrooms and probably living rooms uh, for the last many months. China is always it's always challenging as a journalist to try to cover a story where you know it's going to be hard to cover it. And Beijing has made no bones about the fact, and, and to be honest, COVID provides a very convenient excuse for them to really, really restrict access beyond a incredibly confined space for journalists to cover the Olympics. So it begs the question in every newsroom, there's first the public safety aspect of sending journalists um, traveling at a time when we're all being encouraged to stay home. But more importantly, it's that Canadians' expectations, if we go to a country like China, one that is in the news, one where there are lots of things to discuss, um, is it not then our responsibility as journalists to tell those stories in and around the Olympic Games, which is what has happened previously when the Olympics were in Russia. There was lots of reporting and questions being asked around LGBTQ rights and other things that were Russia and Olympic related. Same true around World Cups and other events like that. And right now what journalists are pretty clear about is they're not going to be able to tell those stories. Therefore, are they better to stay home? Or when they stay home, is that sort of throwing in the towel? Because if you put the Olympics themselves aside and you ask the question, is it better to be there and to be able to report even in a limited way than not to be there at all? And I think that's a good question for all of us to think about. And I'm gonna throw this to you, Michael. Is it better to be there? Cause I think the challenge to me is if you're not going and you're still talking about the Olympics, like there's just, even for me with COVID, right? I 
pundit stuff. What I usually was out and about all the time at lunches and rubber chicken dinners and all this kind of shit. And I pick up all kinds of political intelligence that, I mean, I'm, I'm still working to get, but it's a lot harder. I don't have the color. I don't have the gossip. So, you know, not having reporters in situ over there is going to make that challenging on the inverse, sending the world's media over to glorify Beijing is probably not, I think it, like an like ethically is, is a, I think a challenging decision to make. So what would you do if you were still in charge of the star? Well, I, I need to ask, first of all, for your indulgence and patience while I get something off my chest. The CBC has no business bidding to cover the Olympics and spending tax to, taxpayers' money to do so. There is no, it doesn't fit the mandate of binding the nation together and they shouldn't be doing it. They should leave it to the private stations. No business. Having said that, there is, and putting the moral issue aside, um, yes, China will receive more access to the story, but, but all Olympics are restricted restrict reporters on access in fact you have to pay for access like unlike other sporting events like the super bowl or the world cup you have to pay to go to the olympics and you have to pay to get access to these athletes to say what they're going to say so their stories their stories are mostly i mean sometimes there's a tragedy but mostly they're harmless little stories meaningless and probably almost instantly forgotten especially on these minor sports so i don't buy that you, can't, that you have to be at the Olympics to cover the Olympics. I've spoken with some honest, and there are some of them, uh, sports reporters who say, there's actually no point in going. We just watch it on the TV like everybody else. So as, as Carl said earlier, who's sending, uh, not sending most of the people, they're in, a, they're in a basement in a shopping mall in Connecticut watching TV like the rest of the world. And so I have a chance now, I think, to to watch the NBC coverage and for NBC management to look at it and say, okay, what are we missing this time that we had last time in the Winter Olympics and make a decision on how to cover sports going forward. Do we have to be there to get these meaningless quotes or can we just cover it and watch it the way everybody else watches it? You, you know, when you go to, for example, an NBA game, they feed you the quotes. They have someone running up and down the press box, giving you out quotes, giving the reporters statistics, giving you more quotes. It's not what we think it is. Yeah, I, I guess I would disagree. I mean, I, I think that the Olympics is about more than a professional sporting event. I mean, it's not professional at its very nature, but I, I think it is about bringing the world together. It's about a lot more than that. And, and when you think about the deployment, which I think we do have to differentiate, and because what I'm really talking about is news deployment, not sports. So big organizations that send teams, whether that be NBC News or CBC News, that they send us the sports team who are there really quite truly to cover the games themselves. But the, the news journalists are there. We used to call it, and I suspect they still call it, kind of inside and outside assignments. Like who's in the room and who's outside? And it's the outside stories that are the ones that are the, the where the news value comes. And so it's not who won the moguls competition, but it's about the dynamic in and around the Olympics themselves, what's happening in the country, what, you know, what are the politics of it? It's, it's all of the things outside of the actual games that, you know, maybe, maybe don't have a place in Olympics coverage, but they are essential. Many people would say they are essential. And that's what's being restricted now. And that's what you can't do unless you're there. So I suppose we'll have to wait and see what the result of this reporting is, but I'm not sure being there uh, in China will allow very good CBC general news reporters to get at something that they couldn't get at elsewhere. I, I just don't know, sure. and, but I no, doubt it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge. If you can't, if you can't get it at any way, 
then is it worse to be there and to and to uh, struggle to get the story out? Sorry, Andre, you were going to jump in. Well, no, but I think the, then if it's difficult or impossible to cover, if you're there, the story becomes that it's impossible to cover, and that's the story in itself. I mean, you can't really report on. You can say what are the rules that China imposes to journalists, but you don't live the rules, right? If you're there and you're attempting to cover Uyghurs or uh, whatever other story, you're you're trying to talk to ordinary Chinese people and it's impossible because the regime uh, forbids it, prohibits it, then that becomes a story and it's not good for China and it's good for us to be there and to be aware of that. I agree with the ongoing deadly genocide of the Uyghurs. <clears throat> just cover. If you're gonna do that story, do it. You can't go to China. So don't, you know, don't forget that, that the Olympics has afforded access. Right. So, so it's not a, well, but, part of it. But, but sorry, but as you said, you know, what kind of access? It's a joke. And I think we all know that. Anyway, it's not 100 to zero. It's a good discussion to have. All right. So we remain undecided on this point. Um, I will say as someone who has been on, not that I'm like trying government, but being government and media decides to write stories about lack of access. It is a glorious pain in the ass to do it's like oh they've all decided they're mad and we're going to write stories about press conferences and but that's obviously very different than i would say what's happening in china i do want to pick up on a little like jab that michael did at the very beginning which um was on our list as well which is uh the cbc and i know uh caroline spent a long time there uh proud ex-cbc or um and there's been a kind of a, a debate over the last couple of months. It started with an ex-journalist or, you know, staffer there, whatever, cons consultant or contractor, um, writing a big piece about why she quit. Um, we then just this week had um, the minister responsible come out uh, with his mandate letter, the slow leak of the mandate letters that took months to get out, um, talking about putting $400 million into the CBC with the explicit purpose of moving away from um, the advertising, the piece that Michael talked about. I'm not really sure how that will shake out. If it's just an excuse to fund the CBC, but anyway. Um, so, and then we're not the only one having this conversation. The BBC in the UK is also having that. Whether it's a distraction that Boris Johnson is doing just so people have that debate and not debate whether or not he should still be uh, the leader of his party and the head of the country um, remains to be seen. But curious, I mean, I, I'm going to go to you first again, Caroline, and I'm sorry putting you in the hot seat today, but you've lots of expertise in, in our first two topics. Um, what do you make, what do you make of the debate? I mean, you've been outside for a while. I'm sure you have lots of friends still in there, but I think it's an important one for us. And I, I do think the idea that CBC personally um, competes with CTVs and globals, and this is, again, I'm, I work for Bell as well as Navigator, so I have a vested interest in one side of it, but um, I, I prefer it if we actually if we have to fund them properly and get them out of advertising, chasing advertising, then like, let's do it. Um, but I think this hybrid model where CBC is both really isn't fair to the journalists and isn't fair to the rest of the industry. But curious your thoughts on that. So thank you for, you've declared my bias out front, which is good. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the CBC. And, and I, but I also having spent, as you said, many years working at the CBC is this debate is not a new debate. This debate has been going on for, for 20, more, 20 plus years. Um, people who work at the CBC are always feeling, are always wondering, you know, will the funding come and, and can the CBC continue to provide the service that it, that it believes it's, its mandate to do? So, you know, yet it remains CBC 
listen, there's lots of funding that goes to the CBC, but it, but it is one of the most underfunded public broadcasters in the world. And it remains that way. So I think that there is a misconception out there that CBC is drowning in dollars when, when, it, when in fact it's not. The conversation around um, no advertising, <clears throat> I don't know if you'd be surprised to hear, but in the newsroom, everybody would love to have a commercial free CBC. You know, there's been some very bold suggestions about it, and, and there have been CBC leaders who have said that they were going to really push for that, particularly in news. So, for example, CBC National News may just would be perhaps a shorter, shorter than an hour, and it would be commercial free. And that would immediately differentiate it. And it would also allow, um, you know, you're right, on the one hand, it then makes public private broadcasters not have to compete for the same thing, which possibly makes sense. But it also would allow CBC to build a newscast that perhaps is closer to its mandate, if it's not fighting to drive audience numbers in order to compete for ad dollars. So it would solve two problems. And it would allow the CBC, I think, to really to really own what it's best at, which is public service journalism and, and covering the stories that it's, it's mandated to cover. Yeah. I just, I want to unpack, like, I don't know enough, I'll be honest with you, about how, like, underfunded they are as a public broadcaster. All I will say is from my personal experience, and this is just anecdotal as a staffer, if I give gave a story to Global, that would be pushed around all the Global outlets, right? Like, 640 would get it, whatever else. If I gave a story to C24, CTV gets it, like, they're really good at doing that. When I was in the mayor's office, I would, like, four separate inquiries from four different branches of the CBC, all of whom don't share tape and want independent interviews. And to me, that speaks to a level of redundancy or lack of coordination, which perhaps, like, I'm not saying, I, I still think if we say you don't get ad money, the government needs to come in and supplement that, like, fair. I think I think that's a really fair criticism, Amanda, but I think it's one that's actually improved a lot. Uh, there has been a, a real rethink um, over the last, I would say, five years at CBC to really try to avoid duplication. They completely restructured their newsroom so that it is content first, um, platform second. And it used to be the other way around. So therefore it's like, it's called the, you know, the news hub. So all tape is accumulated at a centralized desk and it's then farmed out to the different programs and different outlets. So I think that what you're, I think CBC has gotten a lot better at it. Um, you know, remember that there was a time when local and national news competed with each other where they really did try to differentiate audiences between radio and digital and television. <laughs> I think that is less the case. And I, and I think you're right to push for that even more than maybe it's already happening, but it, but it is changing. To be fair, it was 2016, which is almost 10 years ago now. So I like, <laughs> just ages me. Uh, Michael, you really kicked off on this. So uh, maybe I would wel and welcome you to the, to the debate that you sort of poked. Well, there's so much to say. Um, and most of, look, let me declare a bias, just like Carolyn. I'm an old inky, you know, I love newspapers. <laughs> newspapers not so much in print now but I love them online um, and 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 so while we're discussing one part of, of the CBC uh, the role in today's Canada they it, it's to bind the nation together but I don't think the CBC binds the nation together by covering local city news like routine fires and car crashes and little snowstorms matching what's done by local media outlets private local media outlets in most cities 
with, and the CBC in those cities, Caroline will correct me if I'm wrong, the local news has much, much lower ratings and fewer viewers. There's, there's no point to be there competing with, for example, the Edmonton Journal website or the Vancouver Province website. It's, 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 it's fulfilling a need where there is no need and it doesn't bind the nation together by using its taxpayer subsidy to launch local news websites in more and more markets that compete with pretty good existing print and TV, private TV media outlets. In those cases, as I say, it's, it's serving a need and using, it's serving a need that doesn't exist and using taxpayers' money to do it. It's kind of, as Caroline said, you know, we've had this debate for 20 or more years. Well, 20 years ago, the CBC was rooted at a time when the airwaves were, 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 there wasn't a lot of room and you needed a special license to do it. Uh, so, so I think that if there is a role for the CBC in binding the nations together and telling regional stories from one region to another, and don't ask me to define how they do that because I don't know. Someone, if you really want to know, you're, you're sat watching a digital version of CBC website, which is pretty good in St. John, New Brunswick, and you want news from Edmonton, you can go and get it. You don't need to be served it. So. So the trend has been more and more local for CBC, especially on the digital side, where <laughs> the local markets are served already and they're pulling it away from, from private media outlets that need, need the money. Uh, so I, I, think, I think it needs a bit of a rethink. And, and just at the end of my little uh, rant slash tirade here, I will also say that the CBC local websites are pretty damn good, but they're over-serving the market. I wonder, though, whether I mean, I, I agree with Caroline that the news uh, the news part of the CBC should not uh, have advertising. I'm just wondering whether and thinking of the French side of the CBC, Radio-Canada, they they now produce probably some of the most watched shows, uh, you know, at least four or five or six of the most watched shows, the 10 most watched shows in, in Quebec. And I wonder if without their concern for advertising revenues, whether they would have done that, whether they would have achieved this, these kinds of shows that are so popular. I mean, I'm thinking of the, their, um, their New Year show, Bye Bye, it was watched by more than 4 million people in Quebec. That means like two thirds of adults were watching this show live uh, on New Year's Eve. That's quite remarkable. And I just wonder if you pull out advertising altogether, whether, whether they will be as sensitive to what the public likes and may not decide for the public what they should like. That's a good point. I mean, I think at the end of the day, everybody wants the stories that they're telling to be watched and to be seen. But forcing people to be as populist as they can be is in touch with what people are really needing at the time. One could argue that uh, got a little help from the premier for the Quebec New Year's Eve yes. show so no yes. one could go outside yes. after eight o'clock at night. But. <laughs> True. <laughs> but, you know, discussing a, a CBC mandate, and if you maybe the mandate should change and it shouldn't be binding the nation together, but seeing that it is, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do that to differentiate yourself differentiate the CBC from other news broadcasts. For example, I can switch on CBC News World right now and see a press conference and a, and a simultaneous translation in both languages. I can switch on CTV and see the same thing. And, and so th there is no differentiation, or at least not enough. So if you want to differentiate it, maybe you take it up market, make, make it a bit more cerebral, more deeper, more broader, 
Uh, there's lots of ways to do it, but right now it seems to be an echo. And part of that echo, I think, is, is what you're saying, Carolyn, is the need to get ratings, the need to get numbers to satisfy the advertisers. So maybe gradually, intelligently, smartly, taking the funding away, sorry, the other thing, giving them more funding, but taking the advertising away, will push the CBC news to a place that pushes it to a, to, to a glorious shelf in our nation of, of smart, intelligent, deep news, where if you want something in depth, that's where you go. Right now, it's an echo of the privates. Yeah, they, they do have to be watched, but, but, but do they? Look at PBS in the United States. That's a deep show, an hour every night. It's terrific. It's got a left of center bias, no doubt about it. But I think the CBC does too. And I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, maybe it doesn't have to be watched. You, you, know, you know, when you say, Andre, that Bye Bye is watched by 4 million uh, adults in Quebec on New Year's Eve, but partly that's, uh, as uh, obviously we all know, I mean, partly that's, it's in French. It doesn't compete with CNN. So, so there's, a, there's a natural language shoot that shoots yes. uh, Quebecers down there to watch that show, which I think is probably 30 years old now. I mean, it's a great institution, yeah. right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's a fabulous, funny show. And then, and then for days afterwards, it gets clips all over the radio and TV, and 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 there's, and there's a national. I say this in the Quebec sense. There's a national um, debate or or assessment of how this year's show was. I, yeah, my my point was that uh, uh, these kinds of very popular shows. Uh, when CBC relied less on advertising revenues, they simply didn't produce. Okay. I mean, they, they produced good shows, but shows that were not watched by one or two or three million people. And so it's the advertising that, yes, the ratings, the race for ratings, it's true. And uh, sometimes sometimes leads the CBC or Radio Canada in directions that I don't agree with, but it makes them sensitive to what the public likes. Right. How does uh, Céline Gallipo and Téléjournal stack up against TVA national news in the evening? I mean, in, in English Canada, for example, and I obviously declare a spousal bias here, the CTV <laughs> national news obliterates the CBC. Is that the same in Quebec or is it reversed? Not to the same extent, but yes, TVA is, uh, is way ahead for their news shows, both the newscast at uh, 6, 6 p.m. and the one at 10 p.m. All right, our next topic, which uh, my colleague Andre Pratt has written on extensively, been interviewed about, uh, and I think kicked off a massive wall-to-wall -wall debate in our country um, last week, um, but I'm guessing it's still hot and heavy in Quebec, is the tax of the unvaxxed. Um, and curious, Andre, now we, this thing's been simmering for, you know, 10 days now, I think, eight, nine days. How we've seen polling, it is broadly popular across the country. I think it is abhorrent, um, but I remain on the outskirts. Also, apparently, I saw a poll yesterday, almost 30% of Canadians agree with jailing unvaccinated people. So I guess Legault is sort of pushing <laughs> it in the right direction. But what's what's happening in Quebec? Have we just accepted that this is going to occur? Is, is, it, is, it, is it a big debate? Um, and do you agree that it's potentially a political ploy to distract from what some people are saying is Legault's the bloom is off the rose a little bit out there in Quebec. What, what do you well, make of it? It's clear that the announcement was designed to uh, satisfy a large part of the population who are really angry at the, uh, the anti-vaxxers. So uh, what is fascinating is that the vast majority of commentators and experts have uh, said that this thing just doesn't make sense for a host of reasons. The first one being that it's totally improvised. But 
I mean, the last, the most recent Leger poll shows that over 60% of Quebecers agree. So whatever we say as commentators, right, talking heads has absolutely no impact on what people think. So uh, I, I think the expectation in, in, the, in for <clears throat> most people is that this, this project will simply die on its own in the, during the debate in the National Assembly, because I, I think even the premier himself realizes that it's just, it's just impossible to implement. I mean, the, the, when the first uh, negative comments came, it was on the fact that you know many people who are not vaccinated are amongst the marginalized, underprivileged people in society. And uh, so Mr. Legault reacted by saying, well, these people will be exempted from the tax. Oh, no, I but didn't hear that, really? Yes, so, but how will, you, <laughs> how will you do this? I mean, will you have a line in your income tax return saying, you know, are you underprivileged? Yes, no, and if you <laughs> answer yes, you, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So I, there will this issue it will be part of a bill that will be tabled in the National Assembly. The process will be pretty long. Everyone agrees that if ever it's implemented, it's for next year's income tax return, when hopefully the pandemic will be behind us. And uh, most of us commentators think that this will be just forgotten, but it probably helped the premier in uh, in maintaining a very high level of popularity, even though it went down a little bit, uh, because it did serve as a distraction. For instance, uh, a, you know, distraction from the curfew, which the curfew, which was very unpopular. Andre, did the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did he really call in French the unvaccinated racists and misogynists? Yes. Okay, that's very strange, as though there aren't any racists or misogynists among the 90% of those who are vaxxed, right? Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess most of my are... friends who are unvaccinated, by the way, are neither, they're actually mostly like woke people that use like, like herbs and, and like, you know, oils to help their holistic health. Like it's not the, your atypical knuckle dragging, whatever the heck. Um, most people, on, right? I think, are starting to realize that people who are not, amongst people who are not vaccinated, there are a lot of people who have, I wouldn't say good reasons, but considering their situation, valid reasons, and you can't certainly categorize them as simply racists or, or people who believe in plots by Bill Gates or whatever. You know, they're people, for, for instance, are mar marginalized within the healthcare system who... Uh, you know, are, are, don't have access to information about vaccination. I mean, there are community groups that went door to door to try to, in, in Montreal, to try to convince people to get vaccinated. And I mean, those people were not even aware, you know, that what is vaccination? They just don't follow the news. They just, they don't know. And some of these people are very hard to reach by the system. And they're amongst the 10 or 12% who are not vaccinated. Yeah. So. Uh, I think I think by by categorizing them as you know whatever racists or whatever the prime minister said, you certainly don't encourage them to to get vaccinated. Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, I've got a niece who's uh, who's not just unvaxxed but an anti-vaxxer, and I don't have any sympathy, you know, for the unvaxxed during a pandemic that's you know, obviously straining the system and literally killing people. But but like Andre, I think, or like all of us, I prefer the. You know, positive incentives like paying people to get vaccinated or giving them free pizza or beer or something. <laughs> um, but we don't know really how, how many of the unvaxxed, as, as Andre is saying, is due to real health issues or real religious issues. Uh, 
I mean, hello, Quebec, the bureaucracy trying to get to that, whether you're going to find them or not. And if a person wants to sit in his or her basement and not go out and have groceries delivered and watch YouTube conspiracy videos all day, well, we should leave them alone. Um, I, I think in terms of covering this, you know, taxing the unvaccinated will, will get clogged, as, as Andre is saying, in the National Assembly or in the courts, and it will never become reality. And that phrase ought to be in every news story on taxing the unvaxxed. As, as Andre said, it's totally improvised and it is most unlikely to happen. And we need to keep saying that as we as news stories talk about it. Now, so, Michael, I think the political issue becomes if people, the vast majority of people in, in Quebec, at least, and I suspect in the rest of the country also, are angry at people who do not who do not want or can't get vaccinated. How do you channel this this anger or frustration? What do you do as a government to channel this? And uh, I, I think that's what Mr. Legault, for whatever reason, tried to do, and he was clobbered for trying to do it. But what should you do, uh, you know, hey. as a politician? But can I, can I ask Andre quickly? So you're, what we're all saying is basically he did this because it's better to focus the public's and anger on the enemy of the unvaxxed, even with this kind of insane policy, as opposed to the enemy, which is the premier who imposed a cur like a bananas curfew, which he's since rolled back and you've had your chief medical officer resign and stuff. So did we all, all of us, including the news outlets, just like totally fall hook, line and sinker for a political strategy that effectively worked because it's popular with 60% of the population? Yeah, it worked. And yes, we <laughs> yes. But, but didn't it I also mean, work to get people to, to get, like, di didn't it also work as a, there was four times more people getting vaccinated once this was announced? It, it lasted for a couple of days, Caroline. There were just, there were a few people, well, a few, a couple of So the most, the, the most effective one in Quebec was you can't go into a liquor store if you're not vaccinated. Uh, yes, that's what, <laughs> you know, we don't have any proof of that, but uh, that's, that was also a very popular measure and I suspect it did have some impact. But again, a few thousand people, you know, you have about, I think there are 700,000 Quebecers, adults who are not vaccinated. Uh, out of them, maybe, you know, 5,000 got vaccinated because of one of these measures. So the impact is really, uh, is minimal. So Legault is basically playing like, checkers while the rest or chess while the rest of us were all playing checkers effectively yeah, <laughs> well, no, i mean this is a characteristic of that government is that they're you know they're i mean all governments are concerned about polls but they really have their finger on quebecers polls every day and they react to that very quickly like the premier lifted the curfew i mean saying it's gonna get better so the numbers don't show it but it's gonna get better so we're lifting the curfew I mean, the situation is not better than when the curfew was imposed. So why lift it? I mean, I'm in favor of lifting it, but I don't know why they did it, except for political reasons, because they saw in the polls that their support was going down because of the curfew. So when they say that their decisions are all based on science, I, I, I remain skeptical. So shifting... What, Caroline? Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say then, is there something for governments around the world to learn from that? I, I mean, I don't know. So lockdowns aren't popular anymore? <laughs> <laughs> no, just that, you know, everybody's using different strategies, whether it's political strategies or whether it's science strategies, whether, you know, you see people trying different things everywhere to see what will stick and, and what won't. And, you know, Quebec has been out there, and but it's just interesting to watch how it's worked 
Uh, yeah, I, I have. Uh, I'm going to say something that is really not politically correct, I guess, but uh, I, I have the impression after those two years that the pandemic is much uh, <laughs> wiser than we are, and it manages to do whatever it has to do, right? I, I mean, I look in the U.S. Apparently, now the number of cases are going down a little bit, and I mean, they they acted in a very, in most, in many of the states, totally irresponsible fashion, and yet. The pandemic does whatever it wants to do. And uh, I think that's something that we'll, I mean, you know, everyone is now saying we'll have to live with this with this virus. I think it's probably time, certainly, if it, this continues longer, governments will have a harder and harder time to imposing lockdowns and things like that, because, I mean, people want to start living again, right? I think you're saying, I think they've lost the moral authority to do that stuff. And I think if you, there's a piece in the New York Times about Anyway, I won't even go. I, I, I basically become a full-on anti-lockdown person after the after traveling <laughs> up to this country for 10 days and realizing what it's like to walk outside your door every day and not be told you're going to die if you breathe the air in the grocery store. So I think the way we talk about it here is just totally, I don't think anybody realizes how effect, how much it affects us all and how risk averse we are. I think it's bananas. Um, but I do want to just take a couple minutes to ask the group of you. So this week in Ontario, um, Premier Doug Ford sort of, he's, who's, Unlike Legault, his approval rating, I think, is clocking around 30%, which is the lowest it's been in his entire mandate, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, it's certainly yo-yoed up and down throughout the pandemic. Uh, but he went back to this approval rating came out, you know, they're facing an election in June. So he went back to his old bag of tricks, which is, you know, serving the people. So out he came with his emergency shovel in his truck, which is the world's smallest shovel, but fine. And you saw these photos of him shoveling people out, towing folks all this kind of stuff. It was interesting to me because having like campaigned against him and um, his, his now past brother, former mayor Rob Ford, this for the people like Joe public regular stuff works to a certain extent. But one, it was mostly a phenomenon of social media because when I looked at some of the newscasts, other than reporters tweeting that it happened, it wasn't on the CTV News at Six lead. Um, it really wasn't in the newspaper that I could see anywhere. So just curious, he's the premier, it's a massive snowstorm, it's a huge event, and yet the outlets clearly chose to actively not cover this because it, I don't know if they thought it was a stunt or what it was. So maybe Michael, I'll go to you because I know you were there during the Ford stuff, is how would you, if you were in the newsroom and saw this happen, is there news value? How do you cover political stunts when they're obviously, I mean, I think he generally wants to help people get out, but I also think there was like a function of what the hell's going on? I'm just going to go back to my old bag of tricks, which is unilaterally calling reporters and doing interviews, you know, right. from your car on FaceTime, doing, taking photos, driving people around and hoping the word gets out. Like what, what did you make of that? And how would you cover it? Well, it's a tricky one. It, it, we, we, there was a lot of it on, on, on television, uh, uh, you know, certainly on CP24. Obviously the premier Doug is an echo of his brother, as you say, Mayor Rob Ford, who despite Rob's obvious flaws of drugs and lying and, and lying about drugs and lying about lying, people liked Rob. Um, I don't think they have the same um, fondness uh, for Doug, but but Premier Doug is a populist or he seeks to be and will do what he thinks will look popular. Uh, and there were lots of, uh, of TV news clips that day or over those two days of other people helping, you know, pushing buses, buses and helping dig neighbors out, et cetera. So I ask, you know, what if Justin Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh had been shoveling snow? Would those videos have made the news? Yeah, I think they would. Uh, did Doug break some rules by touching his phone that day? Yeah, he did, but 
who hasn't done that? You know, I mean, let those who have never touched a finger on a quick dial throw the first stone, uh, as our Lord and Savior said. So I think the media, the professional media constabulary who are cracking down on Ford likely wouldn't, I think, if it had been someone like Amanda Horvath, the NDP leader out shoveling snow. I think the media would have framed her as some kind of hero. So I think, I think that the journalist critics might better spend their time doing some honest reporting and asking, you know, did Ford call a news desk? And if he didn't call the news desk or a news desk, who on his team did? And if this was a cynical attempt to look good in a, in a snowstorm, a worst one we've had in a decade, let, let's do the reporting and say, yeah, this was a cynical attempt. If we're gonna do reporting, do the reporting, uh, but it didn't get done. Caroline? Yeah, I'm, usually Michael and I disagree, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here listening to you thinking you make lots of sense. Yeah, I, you know what I also think, to be honest, um, so I, I think stunts work if they're in keeping with who you are. So it was a smart stunt for him. It fit his image, it fit what worked, all the things you said, Amanda. And I also think that people kind of needed a little lighthearted something. And just, you know, the fact that he, that he made mistakes while doing it, I think actually made it resonate in some ways more. Even here at the head of the OPP yesterday saying, can't really be mad at the guy. At least he was out there trying to help. So yeah, I am, um, but, but I'm with you. I, I'm not surprised it didn't get picked up, um, you know, in major newscasts, as you were saying, but it was a social tool. It was shared widely, probably accomplished what Ford set out to accomplish. And I'm not too critical of it. So, so since we're a, a rare moment of agreement, Carolyn, <laughs> do we agree that, that, that not covering the premier shoveling snow is a conscious news decision and that a better decision might, and we didn't cover it because we thought it was a stunt, but maybe you should cover the premier doing a stunt. And bring some analysis to it. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah, 100% okay. agree. Wow, what a day. Yeah, there missed opportunity <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> Those are the kinds of stories people want to watch. And like, I used to do stunts. I remember like when we were doing the Gardner debate, I gave them, like, it was one of my last things I did in the mayor's office, but I got them, I got, I'm like, you know, rocks fall out. Like they actually chipped the Gardner in the city of Toronto, which is the big highway and shit falls off of it. That's the thing they do every freaking year. It's crazy to me. So I was like, get me a rock. Like I want one of the rocks that falls off of the gardener. We gave it to him in like city council debate. And when he debated the, like the shift of it or the funding of it, I, he, I'm like, hold it up, like hold it up in council chambers. It was a photo. It was great, but it was like in keeping with him. But I guess curious, Andre, if, if Legault um, went out about shoveled snow, how would the Quebec media treat, I guess like, what is it called? Papa Legault? <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I agree with Caroline. It has to, if you do these kinds of stunts, it has to fit who you are, right? And uh, I, I think Legault, well, first of all, I mean, we did have a, a large snowstorm, but didn't get as excited as Toronto folks did, right? Because we, I guess we're more used to it. I don't know. But uh, uh, at the same time, I think people would expect Legault in the, I mean, if there was a major, really a major snowstorm to be there and, <clears throat> you know, make the decisions that have to be made and, be do these press conferences, but not shovel snow. I don't think people expect the premier of Quebec to start shoveling snow. That's what that's not what you expect or what you demand of a premier. But in the case of Doug Ford, I agree it fits with who he is, and if it certainly showed a genuine understanding of what was on people's mind that day in in, in Ontario, right? So better than someone who doesn't say anything or just sends a couple of tweets about the storm. 
By the way, my favorite stunt of all time is Denis Coderre when he, yes. um, who was amazing at stunts, by the way, and I encourage anyone listening to Google this, but when he was opposing the Canada Post mega mailboxes, he threw on like a construction hat and got a giant jackhammer and went, and like Denis Legault is not like, he's not a, like, he's a like round man. Like he's not a big man. And he had this like giant jackhammer and just jackhammered the thing like, and got, it was amazing. It was, it was like one of the best. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it worked very well though. I think many people found it a bit, a bit cheesy or over the top. Yeah, I think so. But I loved it, but you know me, I'm really, I like leopard print and uh, <laughs> scan at the same time. So that's probably why I enjoyed it. All right. We are, um, we're over time for this week. So I'm going to cut so her off. To, but, oh, right on her. Michael? No, we're not, we're not to discuss impending world war three, then we'll leave that for next month. Yeah. We can do, can you wait for the next month? Or do you, yeah. Very good. Very good. World War three next month. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Salut le monde. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Kimberly Drapak, Matthew Barnes, Adam Owen, and Thomas Ashcroft. A very special thank you goes out to Caroline Harvey, Andre Pratt, and Michael Cook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Poly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday.